0: Yeah, so now we're talking about looking at dogs humping each other and people reacting to it, and we're going to analyze that through Black feminist criminology to conclude that we should train men the way that we train dogs in order to get rid of rape. And this paper won an award uh, for excellence. I mean, it was the, the specific parameters of the award or that it was exemplary of what the field should be doing. These people, not only will they publish crazy at the highest level of academic uh, publication, but they they think it's good ideas. They think this training men like you train dogs to prevent rape culture is a good idea. Maybe the biggest coup that we had as far as the public reception is that we rewrote a chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism, which was accepted by a feminist social work journal.
1: Oh, my. OK, I'm joined today by James Lindsay, who's a very well-known essayist, author and speaker. He's the author of number, a number of books, including How to Have Impossible Conversations, which he co-authored with Peter Bogossian. And the upcoming book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody, which he co-authored with Helen Pluckrose. His essays have appeared in numerous well-known publications, including Time, Scientific American, The Philosopher's Magazine, Ario and others. He also led the grievance study, The Fair Probe, which we're definitely going to talk about in a few minutes, and has appeared on the Rogan podcast, Dave Rubin podcast. He spoke with the Jordan Peterson As just generally a very well-known guy and a very interesting guy. So thanks for appearing on the show. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's hard to even know where to start, really. But something which I really want to dig into, I guess, from the get-go, really, is the Grievance Studies Probe, which I just mentioned then. Um, Right. Could you kind of just give an outline of what exactly that was and what your aims were in carrying that out? In particular, kind of setting out what the type of scholarship you were trying to kind of reveal for being slightly fraudulent, focused on and what that general area of scholarship is and what it's called
0: and so on. Sure, Um, I'll try to be brief with that. It's actually surprisingly complicated. No need to be brief at all, actually. (laughs) The short answer that led us into it is it's scholarship like gender studies that we were actually targeting. But it turns out there are a lot of branches of scholarship that are like gender studies, that study not just gender in terms of how identity is characterized but also race, sexuality, ability status, body weight status. They are theorizing about how uh, human interactions and things work. So it's almost like something that's not using any data at all, pretending to be sociology is really what these things are.
1: It's like Um, the type of area of study out of which came the things which loads of people who might not be that embedded in the academic
0: literature will have still have heard of
1: things like white privilege. or Yes, you know, yes. That so sort of, yeah.
0: yeah, toxic masculinity, white privilege, yep. um, diversity, equity, and inclusion are big ones now. And all of this stuff kind of either came out of that or is, is stands on the foundation that was laid by this scholarship that we were targeting. So generally it's a bunch of things called something studies or critical studies of something or critical blah, blah, blah theory, something like that. And there are lots and lots and lots of these, they all kind of fall under this umbrella that we ended up looking at after starting with gender studies. So what we did in the grievance studies affair was we, we planned to write for about a year, um, Seeing how fate would treat us, and we were going to write as many academic papers in a year as we could, targeting high-profile journals as a first priority, and then going to lower-profile journals uh, as a as a secondary, you know, fallback measure with those papers. So those papers were meant to be hoaxes in the beginning where we didn't do any research whatsoever. We just wrote absolutely absurd things and tried to check to see if the people in those journals have any idea at all of what they're talking about. And we thought that they didn't. It was actually the very last week of November, we were already admitting. So just from August to November was hoaxing and we admitted hoaxes aren't going to work. We have to do something different. So the project became at that point about, can we learn to replicate their scholarship while intentionally adding elements that make it more absurd, an academic paper is um, the, the the gold standard of the research side of your job when you're a professor, and usually in the humanities, it's somewhere between depending on the institution, depending on your record, depending on what else you're doing, it varies, but anywhere between maybe six and ten academic papers over the course of uh, six to ten, six to seven years is going to be enough to qualify you for your research component for tenure at many universities. And of course, we were just making them up. Uh, And we ended up having seven, which would be enough in many humanities departments to qualify for tenure. We had seven of them accepted for publication, including a couple of them in very prominent journals, uh, Hypatia, the, the leading journal of feminist philosophy, sex roles, which is a high ranked interdisciplinary journal that that talks about obviously sex roles. Um, So again, that's where your toxic masculinity and, you know, is this a gendered behavior? These kinds of phrases are going to come up. So this was what we did. And um, we won an award for one of our papers, which was probably the most asinine of the papers we wrote. As a matter of fact, in that diary I mentioned, I was reading through and when we finally in November realized this is a catastrophe. We're going to have, this isn't going to work. We have to change our goals completely uh, which I'll talk about the goals in just a second. I wrote, we basically have to scrap every paper we've written or rewrite them from the ground up. There's no chance for any of them. There's just one that happens to be out there already, but it's way too crazy to have any chance. And it turns out that it's the one that won an award Oh for God. excellence in scholarships. Dog, okay. the, the famous dog humping paper.
1: Yeah. So, can you, what, what did that paper say? Because it's just unbelievable that that has not only got into public, like into academic journals,
0: actually been given an award. So, could you just explain <laughs> what it said? Yeah. So, the, the dog humping paper, in very brief, was the, the, so we started all of our papers, I'll say it this way, with the thing we wanted to argue in mind, and then just trying to make it work to get there. So we started with our conclusion, which of course is backwards. Yeah. And that's going to lead into, you know, what our goals were. If you can do that, there's obviously a problem. So we started with our conclusion and the conclusion we wanted to get to was that it is an, it is a feminist priority to train men the way that we train dogs. Yeah. And so it's already absurd. And, um, I had pitched that paper to Peter because he has dogs I actually don't have any dogs and he lives in a city and I said Pete you go to the dog park every day go gather some field evidence from the dog park and write about your experience at the dog park and we'll turn and so he wrote this just absolutely lunatic manuscript his first draft of this thing and he sent it to me and it's talking about dogs like going to the bathroom on each other it's talking about Dogs humping each other and dogs going to the bathroom in the water bowl and all of this insane stuff. And then the goal was, though, to analyze the idea that humans watching dogs have sex with each other in dog parks, which can constitute a kind of canine rape, has implications about human rape and in particular the culture that supports human rape, which they call rape culture. And so the idea was that there's a canine rape culture at the dog park that has something to do with the dogs but it's more to do with the people watching the dogs rape each other and that this is insightful about human rape culture and human attitudes about rape and that of course we just cooked up a bunch of fake impossible data like that we examined 10,000 dogs and their genitals so then we we collect all this data where essentially you know dogs rape each other we make a note about it and we note how the people behave and we said well Men encouraged their male dogs to rape female dogs, but they freaked out if the dogs, if their male dogs raped another male dog. And they were very vicious about the, the treatment of their dogs if they did gay rape. But if they did yeah. straight rape, they were encouraging of it. And just, just this crazy, crazy data that we cooked up about, the, I mean, it's just an cr- absolutely lunatic thing. And then we said, well, we're going to analyze this through black feminist criminology. There's no reason why. I mean, Peter, it was Peter's idea. And Peter's reason was if it has something to do with black feminism, they can't compl- they can't criticize it. It has to somehow be genius. So yeah. now we're talking about looking at dogs humping each other and people reacting to it. And we're going to analyze that through black feminist criminology to conclude that we should train men the way that we train dogs in order to get rid of rape. And this paper won an award. Uh, for excellence. I mean, it was the the specific parameters of the award were that it was exemplary of what the field should be doing. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So the journal was in its 25th year. So it's not like it, it's actually a big journal within the small pond of feminist geography. It is the biggest journal in feminist geography. And they're in their 25th year so it's an established thing that's been going on obviously now 26 or seven years and they were having their 25th anniversary celebration and to do so they were highlighting one paper per issue of the journal that year to say this is what our field is about this is what it needs to be doing going forward and our paper was selected as one of the examples oh man that's absolutely crazy so this tells you what our goal was. Our goal was to to show that th- these journals will publish things that are absolutely crazy because they think they're good ideas. Yeah. And a lot of people have missed that because we did start off hoaxing and a lot of people ran with the idea of hoaxes. We actually, nobody really knows this. We put out a press kit when we came out with the, the project. We sent it to hundreds, literally hundreds of journalists Telling them what we had done, and in the press kit, we explicitly said, "This is not hoaxes." Please don't call it hoaxes. Yeah. It started as hoaxes. Hoaxes failed. We did something different, and then every journalist in the universe wrote hoaxes. Yeah, and so it was like great, um, you know, awesome. So what our goal at first was, of course, to hoax them, which is to say that our goal was to show that they don't know what they're talking about. And then I said in November, we realized that they do know what they're talking about. They actually believe the crazy that they're writing. So the goal switched at that point to understanding that craziness ourselves and showing the public that yes, indeed, these people, not only will they publish crazy at the highest level of academic uh, publication, but they, they think it's good ideas. They think this training men like you train dogs to prevent rape culture is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so basically, the point is, it shows it's not only just ridiculous in and of itself that that can get into one publication, but it also just shines a light on the confri- like complete fraudulence of the entire discipline, essentially. Because right. once that's been published in an academic paper, it's entered the realm of something which can then be cited by someone else. And that gives that person's work legitimacy as well. And then newspapers, papers can pick up on it and commentators pick up on it and back up their points by citing that paper. when actually, everything about the paper is deliberately nonsensical and Correct. basically just rubbish but it's being given legitimacy by these people who are kind of the gateholders of legitimacy so it's just so revealing about the state of that form of academia really
0: yes exactly a lot of people focused on peer review and a lot of people said ah and i even got somebody saying it to us the other day uh, i mean literally just the other day somebody said Well, the peer reviewers probably didn't even read the papers. They're just asleep at the wheel. And our point is not that. They definitely read the papers. They wrote us back thousands and thousands of words talking about our papers in detail. They very clearly read them. They very clearly understood what we said. The problem isn't that peer review failed. It's that the field itself believes crazy ideas and thinks they're good. And they proved that fact by endorsing the papers. So then the usual criticism, and somebody brought this one up with us in an actual academic paper the other day, is that um, apparently that's no problem, (laughs) that they believe crazy ideas. Like, so what? People are allowed to believe crazy ideas. And it's like, how do you not think that believing crazy ideas and publishing them in academic literature when these people are then cited as race scholars or gender scholars or whatever it happens to be? how do you not think that that's a that's a problem but that's where we are i mean that's what we aim to show anyway is that the people in the fields actually believe crazy ideas
1: yeah it's actually like it's almost quite stressful to think about because it's so obvious that what's going on is that some of the most important people in terms of determining basically societal discourse at the moment and the nature of so much of our politics and stuff are just fraudulent and not even some of them aren't even conscious of the fact that they're thrall to these ideas which make no sense at all they might even think well, right. they make sense but it's just basically by any basic standard of academic rigor which should be applied it just doesn't meet the necessary criteria but it's still so central to what's going on in terms of the debate and discussion i really want to get onto that but like just give me some other like quick examples of some of the things because it's actually like it's hilarious but it's also honestly quite terrifying some sure. of the things you're able to get into publications
0: it's yeah, like we, one about you, like it's like one what about, you just said super important too so definitely um So the papers that were accepted include uh, the dog park, the dog humping paper. Yeah. Um, The, there was one about that if uh, there would be less transphobia, if straight men would practice putting things in their butts, because then (laughs) they would be less uncomfortable with the idea that their girlfriend has a penis. (laughs) Didn't you do one on like, it was
1: like being able to, they were not allowed to mock social justice. Yes, that was
0: actually accepted by, by Hypatia. Uh, there was a paper that we wrote that was that any humor that's satirical in particular that mocks social justice is wrong and that criticizing social justice in general is morally uh, untenable. But any kind of humor that you want to use to push social justice, like if you want to make fun of, of white people, for example, that's OK. Um, but you can't make fun of social justice. That's absolutely wrong. Um, I mean, what that shows though also, I mean, it's like, it's so ridiculous, but everyone kind
1: of hasn't, an, anyone who's got any sense of what's going on is aware that there's that impulse on the social justice left, let's call it at the moment, but uh, you've got that properly published and it's been given complete academic legitimacy through that process. But what it is essentially, is just a really, really openly censorious argument that yes. that ideology is just completely shielded from any criticism or any humour related to it, but any form of attack on anyone else, basically, is completely legitimate. And that's been Correct. just instantly legitimized by the people who are meant to be seeking social justice. It's such a strange situation to be in. And it's still ongoing now. Like, It's not like it's changed since you wrote that. That's still the case in university. It's
0: still the case. Yeah, definitely. And you don't know um, one about
1: mine camp,
0: didn't you? That's recognize? what I was about to say is, yeah, uh, maybe the, I don't know that it really was. I mean, some, I think the paper we just talked about that you can't make fun of it paper, you know, which we called when the joke's on you, and then they public they accepted. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, so I had some good times with that. But maybe the biggest coup that we had as far as the public reception is that we rewrote a chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism, which was accepted by a feminist social work journal.
1: Oh, my.
0: That's, it's actually just unbelievable.
1: Um, can you just go into some detail about what the kind of the central tenets of this social justice. It's, it's hard, I'm not even sure what the exact right terminology to use is. I guess you call it a bunch of different things, but you could call it social justice.
0: I have said on a term now, the term that I have settled on is a little bit more technical, um, but I think it's the right term and I call it critical social justice. It's the idea of achieving social justice by using the various critical theories, including yeah. postmodern criticism as well as uh, formal, you know, radical, critical theory that kind of indicates Jordan Peterson to a degree because it is the fusion of postmodernism as a kind of philosophical theory that doesn't believe in truth and yeah. thinks everything is just political power. And then, uh, neo-Marxism, which was this, it's the radical movement that basically started to see all of society as in terms of oppression and in terms of um, how powerful interests are able to control how people think by making it cool or by putting it on TV or something like that, is very kind of pop culture oriented uh, rather than where Marx thought it was all economics. They said, no, 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 it's not economics. It's actually culture that influences people to get them to go against their own interests and not have the revolution that would liberate them. So that's what I mean, some people call it cultural Marxism, but that's a tricky term. So that's the neo-Marxist side. That's the radical activism side. And then the postmodern theory is the uh, knowledge is whatever you want it to be, more or less. Yeah. So, so this is basically the like, kernel of the
1: academic. This is basically the center of the academic thought, which has seeped into wider culture, which loads of people aren't aware of hasn't even happened, but still kind of just buy into some of the central tenets somehow by just the diffusion of these ideas into society. So in, in most journalists and most commentators on TV and loads of people you'll speak to are generally quite clued up and intelligent, will just take some of these assumptions of this theoretical outlook as just given, when actually, if you look at the statistics on most of the issues they're talking about, those that make no sense at all. So the understanding you'd have of the nature of racism in society in the West at the moment, or in the UK or the US, or the nature of the gender pay gap, for example, or all these complicated things, you constantly just have a default position which loads of people subscribe to, which is basically society is unbelievably unfair. It's almost systemically corrupt. And there is just constantly new evidence coming out about this. And you'll see little clips on the internet which somehow reinforce these things. But actually when you dig into these in detail, Most of these points have serious issues with them, which need to be analysed in much more detail than just summarised as, oh, society is really, really racist. Racism is holding these people back. Jobs are sexist and employers are sexist and that's what's holding women back. It's way more complicated than that, but it just gets covered over basically by this academic literature. So I'm guessing that's what you address in your book which you're about to publish right
0: sure yeah so 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 let me actually jump in real quick because when i said a minute ago before i talked about um that last bit that you said something that was very important and i want to come back to that because a lot of critics of the work that we're doing especially academic critics like to point out that it doesn't make any sense to to blame the academic literature and to blame academia. They, of course, they wanna protect academia in general, especially you know it's where they work, their academics too. They are correct that they are getting unfairly, good academics are getting unfairly tarred and feathered, not just because of our work, but because our work pointed to a problem that is something to do with academia. And they like to try to minimize that by saying, well, it's only a very small percentage. Even on campus, you don't really have a ton of this behavior so on and so forth. It's a very small set of departments with a very small percentage of graduates. I think it's like 0.2% of graduates in the United States are in gender studies or something. It's very small. And um, they're like, obviously, academia can't be blamed for the this being such a big deal in society. It must be something else. And you hit upon the correct point. The issues themselves are hot-button issues, right? Everybody is talking about race. Everybody is talking about sex. Everybody is talking about gender. Everybody's talking about sexuality. Everybody's talking about ability status and fat phobia and all of this shit. Every day now, you can't get away from it. It's in every article you read. It's in every conversation has to somehow acknowledge it. It comes up over and over and over again. Whatever the set of reasons are for that, and they're probably complicated in many – including graduating enough graduates that have gone on to write about it in all those articles and and so on. Yeah. The fact is everybody's talking about it. And so when they turn to the academic literature to say, well, what do we know about race? What do race scholars say about race? This is the stuff they're looking at. They're not finding rigorous material because rigorous material is barely allowed to be published. Yeah. Anything that goes against the party line actually gets shouted out of the literature or it gets argued by this new stuff that it was debunked. But as you said, it doesn't really have any great credentials. So you have something happening in society that's extremely that's made race, uh, sex, gender, sexuality, issues of identity, extremely interesting to people. Lots of people are talking about it all the time. And when they turn to that gold standard literature, what are they going to see? It turns out to be a heaping pile of shit, but uh, they think that they're seeing. And this is what they call themselves: race scholars. We consulted race scholars, and now we have to have this diversity program. We confronted or consul- consulted gender scholars, and now you know medicine has to be reorganized to to deal with this, that, and the other thing. But the thing is that the research everybody thinks it's real, but it's it's what we we're trying to show with our papers is that it, there's something wrong there that it, it can't really be relied on. But the reason that this literature is such a small percentage of what's happening and yet has such a huge outsized influence on our society is because everybody's interested in it. So everybody's looking to turn and say, well, what's the best information out there about it? And then you read all this crazy shit and so that's what appears to be the best information there is about race, sex, gender, sexuality, and ability status and fat status and every other kind of status that you can imagine is your identity. So it, people, I mean, I, I know that I'm like kind of oddly fixated on this, but for like two years, we've been struggling to try to find a way to communicate how something so small, small amount of funding, relatively speaking, small number of people, relatively speaking, in the academy can have such an outsized influence. And it's because they got just enough of their stuff out there, whether through activists, whether through um, uh, people who have gone into like journalism as activists, through teaching, whatever it happens to be, they got just enough of their stuff out there to where it became the cultural conversation. So now everybody's turning to look at it. So that's why it ended up having such an outsized influence.
1: But part of what's so weird about this, so on any given issue, so, okay, classic example is I started off in academia as someone who's absolutely committed to fighting racism, sexism, and so on. And my commitment to that hasn't changed at all, but I came out the other end of studying at university, studying this stuff, just being basically convinced that despite the fact that I'm just as committed to fighting sexism and racism as I ever was... The fact that i don't agree with what these people are saying is has got no relation to my dislike of racism and sexism but right. criticizing anything they say is now treated as basically the same as being an actual racist and sexist Correct. so i oppose as much of those people and such an annoying phenomenon is that's why really, we did this yeah that's <laughs> why i was so desperate to get you on the show because you're literally like the one of the only voice i've ever heard to summarizes the point i've been making non-stop for basically a decade now but you just summarize it way better than i do but for example there'll be a news story and it will just have this standard unbelievably misleading statistics on for example something like the black lives matter movement so Mm -hmm. me opposing the basically intentional or unknowing distribution of deliberately essentially misleading statistics on things like the treatment of ethnic minority communities by the police and how likely something is to happen and the reasons for it and saying the narrative being pasted by the black lives matter movement is way too simplistic but it's being adopted by everyone and i'll try and bring that up and say look i think there are problems with this someone who doesn't know much about it will go on their phone google it, and be like no no look there's this article here this article says the opposite of that you're you're talking rubbish and the reason there's like 50 articles on every one of these issues is these issues are exactly what these basically fraudulent academics want everyone to focus on. And when they do focus on it, so much of the focus is dictated by this strand of academia. So it's such a weird repeating cycle. And also, yes. if we're in a situation where one of the things I'm most happy about, basically, is that in the West, obviously, there is still racism and sexism, and that needs to be addressed. But in many ways, it's less bad in the West than it's ever been Right In most societies ever, but the focus on it has basically
0: <laughs> increased like well, in line with it going down so they've, I mean, they've they've painted
1: this completely
0: false picture of what's going on not just in you know racism and sexism are kind of a big thing everywhere, and it's actually that they are quite realistically the least in countries like the u k the u s and so on it's not to say that there's none it's just to say that there's the least i mean. I think it's important to understand, for example, if more Black people are dying from from the the COVID-19, that we understand why and we try to figure out steps to take to make sure that anything that's discriminatory or unfair or unjust gets taken care of. But to say that it's all just discrimination is a completely different thing. And that mindset that wants to bulldoze all of the necessary data in order to just push a narrative that is this one variable, that's where you're talking about that they, the, the analysis that they're giving is way too simplistic.
1: Yeah.
0: A lot of times it's not even based in reality, it's based in interpretive reality. It's based on what they call lived experience, which is by definition two things, highly interpretive, meaning they've. it's not what they actually experienced, it's how they felt about what they experienced. And secondly, that it has to be in accordance with theory. If, Say I mentioned a black person who says, you know, well, slavery was a long time ago. They'll say, well, you're just speaking into white power discourses. You're acting white. You're, you're white adjacent. You oh, but that's, that, such a, that's such a
1: good example. So another thing is, so I think that there's some validity to some of the which these people make. So, on an, there inter- is, yes. so like on an interpersonal level, for example, something I get annoyed by is I really find so much of the theory behind it really annoying, but I don't like completely throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I don't like right. the idea of, for example, a comedian making an off color joke and then the kind of people who are fed up with the SJW type professors will often be like, see, this is fine. This is the type of humor we want. I'll be like, no, I understand the needs to be sensitive to this sort of thing on an individual interaction basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'll take that stuff really, really seriously. And I understand that. I'm like, yeah, maybe there is like a microaggression going on. So you don't want to say that. And then someone will come out who's let's say black or Jewish or whatever. Like, I'm Jewish or whatever ethnicity someone is, they'll come out and say something which goes against the narrative of the SJW types who are telling everyone to be really sensitive to microaggressions. And then the SJW types will actually use like old fashioned racist language, which I wouldn't even use on here, and overtly racially abuse, essentially, the person who's come out and say, you don't even count as a black person. You don't count as gay anymore because you don't support the right party. You don't count as this group or that group because you don't agree with us, but it actually is kind of racist. Correct. And so it's like, why am I paying so much attention to these things you're saying are really important? If you suddenly just completely disregard them when right. you do something, it's yet another example of that sort of hypocrisy. It's actually just amazing how it goes unnoticed.
0: Right. Pete Buttigieg, who ran as a Democrat, quite progressive for you know potential presidential nomination in the US, is straight passing, and he's got a conventional married gay life. So therefore, he's not queer and by by the mean i'm not using queer as a slur that they use the word queer to mean this yeah and um so he's not gay enough or he's not gay the right way therefore he yeah I mean there was actually articles that came out that were something like uh Pete Buttigieg may sleep with men or a man maybe because he's married. Pete Buttigieg may sleep with a man but he's not really gay. Yeah. And then Kanye Kanye West supported came out with his this make America great again hat whether you know whatever the reasons behind that were you know i I'm, he comes out with it, and then the article comes out literally saying he's no longer black yeah but it's, <laughs> it's like, like <laughs> uh, you it's, know uh,
1: yeah, yeah. But I guess it's like the visual it's so, so, on something like that it's so obvious that you can see how counterfactual the whole worldview is in that case, but they somehow right. kind of get it. But it's only an individual instance like that where the average person will be like, all right, what are they talking about? But the rest of them more like so kind of subliminal stuff that you just get every day when you turn on the radio. So I'll turn on the radio and I'll hear like 10 Cambridge graduates. Who I went to university with, who are all saying how they've been really oppressed and how their time at re- university was really oppressive. Yeah. And it's just, it's that subliminal thing that it's not so, it's basically a counterfactual thing. I'm sure that some people encounter some forms of oppression. I'm not denying that at all, but it's just this complete myopic focus on something, which actually, if you looked at it really rigorously, it doesn't make sense to be so obsessed with at this point in time. And yet right. it gets all the airtime. That's kind of the more subliminal, sneaky side of it, which I find so just disconcerting and
0: worrying. You have this whole like diffusion of the beliefs, but the core theology is what's actually informing them. And people have picked up a lot of this from just the culture around them. Their neighbors know it. A lot of your guy who doesn't go to church very often doesn't know what the pastor is saying. He doesn't read the theologians, but he generally knows what other Christians say when he gets together with other Christians. And so he's picking it up from his neighbors, some of whom go to church more often, some of whom might even be a pastor sometimes. And so he's got this like semi informed thing. And that's kind of how it always works. That's how this works as well. So you don't have everybody deep into the politics or into the theory. But the core why, are, why is Kanye no longer black? And the core is that your identity in the theory is political. Your identity is always political. And so if you have the wrong politics, your identity is canceled out. It doesn't matter what. You they're, in a weird way, it doesn't really matter what you look like, although it does. What matters is which which politics you're speaking into. So gay people have to speak into queer politics. Black people have to speak into critical Black politics and Black liberation thought. Women have to speak into feminism. Uh, you know, you pick your favorite one. There's, a, there's this thing. So I was actually talking with a friend of mine who's Black who absolutely hates this stuff. And he's like, telling me about how there's all this pressure on him all the time. And he has to say exactly what he has to say and he has to say it the right way, or they come after him. And the next thing you know, he's like called some horrible name or an uncle Tom or something like this. It used to be that white racists told black people how to think and how to be and how to do and what they had to be. And then we kind of moved away from that. And now you have kind of in a very different way, this is why you kind of feel like you see this very racist stuff coming back up out of them, uh, Now, for instance, Kanye West has to be a Democrat. Kanye West has to push Black Lives Matter. Kanye West cannot support anything the president says, blah, 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 or he's not authentically Black anymore because your identity and your politics are basically the same thing. If you really want to back up deep into the theory, this is because they think everything is politics. They literally think the entire universe all comes down to politics, all knowledge, all teaching, all interactions between people are all inherently political. The personal is political is the phrase. And they've taken this to such an extreme that you see things like saying that Kanye isn't black because he doesn't have the right politics. Yeah. And in a sense, this literally does, you know, they claim to be speaking on behalf of uh, say black or African-American or whatever people. And they're not speaking on behalf of them, they're speaking for them. In the you know, there's two ways to say that. You could say, "Oh, I'm advocating for you," or it's shut up. I'm going to speak for you. I know better than you, and I'm going to tell you how you actually live and experience life, and you have to think this way. And it's it's horrifying. And I mean, I very rarely I get emails every now now and then from from black people who tell me that they feel trapped in this and they can't speak up about it because if they do, they're like, my friends will turn on me. My family will turn on me. I'll be ostracized from my community. Everybody I know is woke. They'll all hate me, but I'm sick of these people. And they say like you do, they have some points, you know, there are some issues. I believe, of course they believe in some of these issues and they need that things need to happen and good research needs to be done and policies need to be changed, et cetera. But, They say that they can't speak about it because if they speak about it, then um, they'll lose their entire community. They'll they'll get turned on in the most vicious way possible. And that's where this stuff gets so nasty. But a classic example that I said yesterday, I saw you
1: see this all the time and it's always in the media and it was at the heart of so much of the black lives matter movement as well but for a classic example just one of literally so many it's impossible even to list them all but yesterday i saw a tweet on twitter where someone who i actually randomly really distantly know somehow who's white had tweeted a photo from the park saying it was just a picture of a cop, like two two police officers speaking to her one black guy, and then there's a white guy somewhere else doing handstand. And she said, "These police officers are kicking the black guy out of the park, and then white guys had nothing done. He's just he's just doing handstand." Got retweeted like twenty five thousand times or something. And then she said, "Like it's like he wasn't even doing anything. He's being kicked out of the park, and now they're harassing all these black families and stuff and so on." And then that some politician saw it looked into it and said actually the guy wasn't kicked out of the park he'd been hitting a tennis ball against a listed building and they just asked him to stop hitting the tennis ball against the building with the with the windows in it he'd nearly hit a family with the racket and we didn't ask him to leave the park um so this is a completely misleading tweet and she just responded saying oh okay we've got something like two replies yeah, and yeah, no yeah. retweets and then she said but the point is that the police are harassing black people more than white people, which isn't either that also isn't proven from the image. And so me finding that annoying has nothing to do with either questioning the fact that it's um, in some places black people are harassed by the police, which is bad, or questioning the fact that racism is something I dislike, which is also true. It's just that the narrative in that tweet is completely unsub- unsubstantiated by the evidence, which has actually emerged, but it's still been retweeted thousands of times. Another perfect example of that is... Um, With I'm Jewish. this It's not like this makes my point valid, the fact that I'm Jewish, but it's just such a good example which I've lived through and seen happening on a personal level. I was really concerned about the rise of Islamist anti-Semitism towards Jews in Europe and in France, because there is a serious spate, there has been a serious spate of Islamist attacks against Jews. There's obviously also far-right anti-Semitism against Jews as well. And the social justice left have been obsessing about the need to be terrified of right-wing antisemitism. And there's a whole upsurge of articles saying how right-wing antisemitism is on the, on the emergence, antisemitism is really bad, so on, so on. But every time there's an Islamist attack, for ages, it was just reported as an semitic attack and somehow made into a way to make it seem to the uninformed reader that what was happening was a right-wing anti-semitic attack. Now, obviously, as a Jewish person, I don't like right-wing anti-semitism, but I haven't experienced that much right-wing anti-semitism. And so the thing I was concerned by was the Islamist anti-semitism, and which they actually don't care about at all. So they don't care about actually fighting anti-semitism necessarily. They just care yeah. about using anti-semitism as a way to Further their political objectives. And if I was to come out publicly and say, I'm also really concerned about Islamist anti Semitism, it'd be like, oh, right, so you're really racist then. You're like, that's racist, that's right. It's like this, it's complete double standards. It's like absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah, uh, that is a major, major thing that's going on. You know, it's pushing that whole power dynamics narrative and, uh, you know what actually these kind of examples remind me of, especially the, the one about the, the guy in the park you were saying? So I grew up, of course, in the southeast in the U.S. And the southeast in the U.S. is not particularly um, renowned for its uh, stereotypes of, of intelligence and is very renowned in stereotypes of religiosity. And these two things are often conflated. You know, you get your dumb redneck Christian. Uh, kind of stereotype here. I did grow up with a lot of dumb redneck Christian stuff. And so I remember a lot in the early or the late two thousands, of course it happened before this, but the late two thousands are, are relevant because social media existed and it didn't exist before that. And so I remember, you know, stories that would go viral. It would be, you know, v- the the joke is always, you know, Virgin Mary appears on the side of a building or Jesus on toast or something like that. I remember one in particular, there was some building in Florida that the Virgin Mary, I think it was in Florida and the Virgin Mary was appearing on the side of the building and it was this halo and it was all glowing and all this. And it turns out, of course, it's just the sun refracting out of the glass when the glass is wet or something like that. And (laughs) so it's like, the evidence is there. And then the, the response, of course, if you say, well, uh, being that I got involved in the atheist movement stuff at the time, it was like, you know, it's just the sun. It absolutely, it's just a bright light hitting wet glass as absolutely. It's not the Virgin Mary. Jesus isn't in your toast. It's just, what's it called pariah dolia or something like that, where you, you see patterns and see images, you know, the cloud that looks like an angel is not an angel. It is still a cloud. Yeah. Um and then the response, you said the thing, and the responses were the same. The responses were, well, the point is that God's everywhere. Yeah. Or, you know, it's very important for me to get to believe that that's what, the, I still want to believe this. And yeah. this reminds me, so my, my friend Mike Nana, that's making a film about our grievance studies papers um, pointed out at some point, he was actually talking about the Black Lives Matter thing. He was talking actually about the videos of the police shootings. Uh and he said these things are exactly like miracle story stories. They're exactly like miracle stories. So you take this some video out of context with several of the the shootings in Black Lives Matter, the, the one you gave about the the tennis racket, the, the guy with the tennis rackets, even better. Something yeah. that's taken out of context, used to push the narrative, the narrative goes viral because it's a miracle story, not a miracle yeah. like a miracle of God, but a miracle of look, the oppression. Ah, you know. Yeah. And and the fact that it's not factual is utterly irrelevant. Just like, you know, and that I'm comfortable saying I'm atheist, uh I don't think there are any miracles. So, I think all miracle stories are baloney. Therefore, um when somebody's like, "Oh, it's a miracle," and it spreads like crazy, it's like, "No, it's probably a cloud, but okay." Uh yeah. it's probably not a miracle. Um, it's the same exact kind of cognitive architecture. And it's like I've said a lot of times that I feel like social justice is very much like a religion, but it's an upside down religion. Instead of being focused on the goodness of God, it's focused on the evil of society. Yeah, So it's like just religion flipped upside down. It's got it all kind of upside down and backwards. And so what they're looking for are miracle stories in the sense not that they're a miracle of this awesome thing happened or God reminded us of his presence, but of here's proof that society is as oppressive and polarized and stratified as we say it is, our yeah. theory is correct. And, and that's the point of a miracle. The point of a miracle story isn't, you know, this awesome, great thing happened. It's here's a tremendous testament to our belief system in God. Well, here's here's a tremendous story that's a testament to our belief system about uh, systemic oppression in society. And so the example you gave of that tweet with the, with the guy in the park and the tennis racket, that's the, the perfect kind of example. You see the same thing with this misleading statistic um, you know, about coronavirus, 70% of the people in Louisiana are black that have died from it or whatever. And it, it's like, but the state, and then the thing is, but the state is this percent white, but if you actually break down the population densities of the places where it's happening, like New Orleans had by far the biggest outbreak in, in Louisiana at the time, and it's something like 60% black. So yeah. 60, 70% is still a discrepancy from 60, but it's not the same kind of discrepancy from like 20 that they were trying to imply by using statewide data.
1: But also, there's loads of really complicated. I, I don't. I would. So, as someone who's basically just a rational person, I'd be really reluctant to. I'd be really reluctant to publicly come to any conclusion as to why that might be. So, it might be the case that it's to do with poverty or to do with discrimination against african-americans i have no idea but i would also be open to the fact it might be to do with for example cultural behavior patterns in different communities but in i think that in like the ultra-orthodox communities in america and ultra orthodox jewish communities in israel for example there's been like problems to do with clamping down on social gatherings because super religious communities tend to hang out in groups and live in more overcrowded houses and do exactly. more social stuff and so on. But I'm not going to say that it's because of that. I'm just saying I'm open to that possibility. But no one would look at Israel and say, oh my God, this is proof that it's like the ultra-Orthodox community must only be explained as being oppressed and that's it. There might be other factors. Whereas exactly. what's happened is politicians just seize on these statistics and are happy to just use them to further a divisive narrative, which has nothing to do with being worried about racism I can be I'm really worried exactly. about this, but they're just using it to manipulate exactly
0: narrative it's very hard to to look at this for very long and not conclude that they are using uh we'll call them for the sake of discussion oppressed groups as props to push a narrative
1: yeah another uh, a classic example is like the gender pay gap thing as well which is uh-huh. obviously there are some forms of oppression faced by women which men don't face and there are some things which men face for example they're much more likely to die in the workplace or go to prison, for example, than women. I'm not saying that means men are oppressed or anything. Obviously, women have a hard deal in some ways. But the way that the narrative is just constantly pushed is basically statistically inaccurate. And you get these people who grow up who are 23, who work in a law firm, who go on BBC radio and say, oh, I've experienced so much oppression, this is why. When actually statistically, I think you're more likely to be getting paid slightly more if you're a graduate and you're female than you're a guy. So it doesn't match up statistically, but you still get that story perpetuated the whole time.
0: Right, and it's exactly.
1: just That's got nothing to do with being anti-sexism. It's just purely being statistically accurate and rigorous.
0: Right. And so you know, you brought up and I agree with literally everything you said. So, uh, everybody thinks I'm some right-wing lunatic or whatever. But no. But so you brought up that you're a rational person and I'm a rational person I believe as well. And you know, we're like, well, what's the evidence and no not what's some evidence, what's the totality of evidence and what does what what is the most accurate story we can tell and let's base our policy off of that. And of course, that's our agenda. Well, why did we write these fake papers? Why are we doing the work we're doing now? because these, we do believe these problems are important and all of this, and they need rigorous, good research, not you know, some narrative pushing bullshit. Uh, so that, that's where I'm motivated. But when you said that you're a rational person, because now I can think in social justice because I've spent so much time in it, what I immediately realized is the the thing that they they say about people like yourself and like I uh, who say well, no let's have rigorous research and this is this should be alarming to everybody who thinks that we're being rational and using evidence matter the thing would say they would say is well no it's actually a white western eurocentric narrative that you believe that you can be rational that you can believe that it's possible to be a rational person and that's just a form of either privilege or internalized dominance these are different terms they might use for it white innocence, white ignorance, willful ignorance, active ignorance. I mean, you can just go on and on and list lots and lots and lots of them that allow you to believe that you're rational and to ignore the fact that you're biased. And that's shocking. The idea that, hey, I want to hold up as an ideal that we're going to approach this as rationally as possible and deferring to as much evidence as possible is in social justice theory. So again, it trickles down into activists at various degrees, that is just a narrative that people in a white Western Eurocentric frame, mostly white Western Eurocentric people, have told themselves to believe that they're superior to other people. And so when we say, I'm rational, and I think this and that, they'll say, oh, well, you're just reinforcing the narrative of your own dominance, and you're excluding other ways of knowing. And you don't even know that you're doing it because you just think it's natural. And thus, you possess a form of false consciousness, and the whole game, they say, oh, you have to be an anti-racist. The whole game of anti-racism is to get you to constantly believe that you are in a state of false consciousness and that you shouldn't be. And it's so perverse yeah, that... I mean, it's, again, I just sound insane when I try to describe this stuff. And it's so frustrating. My life is actually quite miserable right now because people think I've gone too far into it. And I now come off like a lunatic when I tell them, no, the real beliefs that they have about merit. And I'm not talking about necessarily merit, like you earned your way to your job, but that's one thing. But even down to the level of methodological rigor, like that there are some statistical methods that are more effective than others. And we can judge them by their merits in terms of how well they do. To, to get questions right or get the answers to questions right uh even that is considered to be a myth that was created by white western eurocentric men in order to be able to perpetuate their dominance and exclude other ways of knowing in particular emotion and storytelling yeah uh, about one's lived experience as it has been interpreted because it can only be interpreted authentically if it's through theory otherwise kanye isn't black anymore yeah uh, and it's like i try to tell people this and they're like no You've yeah. got it all wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually it's completely unbelievable. But it's like a combination of kind of extreme totalitarian political thought. This is kind of te- it sounds kind of crazy because obviously it's not no- it's nothing like living in a totalitarian system. I'm just saying the mindset that the most extreme people have in this worldview is like is like a combination between like religiosity. Basically, mm-hmm. like there's no belief in there's no way to kind of question what they believe. It's just I believe it, but then they don't present it like that. They present it as if. They believe it, but that's because it's true, which is like I think something you said. There's a difference between religious people who generally say, but they don't say this is true. They say, I believe this. This is my faith. Whereas these people say, I know this because this is the truth. And then you can't question the truth, because if you question the truth, you're reinforcing the narrative of the dominant patriarchal structures and so on. So there's literally no way out of that way of thinking. Plus, it's really conspiratorial because those of their beliefs just come down to these kind of untestable assertions about different nefarious power structures which exist and it's unbelievably internally inconsistent so they'll talk about the power structure and how culture is absolutely everything so anyone who says that the reason we behave the way we do is anything other than completely socially conditioned must just be completely crazy and a biological essentialist but then you'll look at some issues affecting some minority groups in societies, and then any cultural explanation is completely out of the question and the only explanation could be the grander culture. So there's so many internal inconsistencies, but then overall it still becomes like a really respected field in
0: academia and it affects our society. It's just such an unbelievably mad situation. I do think it's actually very conspiratorial and depending on how you look at it, it's either a deliberate conspiracy or implicit or unintentional one that depends on whether you're looking at it through critical theory, which is part of the thing, or postmodern theory, which is another, but that's beside the point. And the theory positions that no racial group except white people has solidarity and that white people have this like, and they literally describe it as like a unspoken, unwritten secret, like nobody actually ever acknowledges it, but somehow it still exists through socialization, that all white people are on the same team against, especially black people, but against all other races And they have this solidarity, and it's all mysterious, like it doesn't really even exist. The only concept they have of this is white solidarity, which is literally maintained without anybody ever speaking about it via what what one theorist named uh, Charles Mills called the racial contract, which again says white people never mention the fact that they are in contract with one another to oppress people of other color. They never say it. They never are explicitly told it. They never hear it explicitly. They all just know it. So there's this weird idea that all like, and it's very prominent in in the theory that, and it's like the basis of what white fragility is, is, is that all white people are secretly without ever telling each other, without ever conspiring together, secretly in a conspiracy to ruin all the, all the minorities lives. And it's just so unfathomable. Like when you say it's conspiratorial, it's like, there's not even a smoke filled room. It's just like this, the conspiracies work by magic and it's the most bizarre thing I think I've ever seen ever yeah. to, to make these claims. And of course, what kind of, if they were ever pressed for evidence, what kind of evidence would they give is they would appeal to something that was like written in like 1820 or something like that, where somebody said something like it. Yeah. And, or some total racist asshole in like 1955 or something like that. And it's such a, it's like, I can't, I, I know why it works, but it's very hard to get my head around the fact that these people seem to want to live like society is in some historical era that we left behind because their politics make sense in that era but don't yeah. make sense now. Rape culture is the same way. There are definitely guys who are like, you know, saying smarmy stuff or then that the, you know, they think that the guy who raped it, well you can't prove it or she she had it come and she wore the wrong thing. You definitely have some of that, but I don't think our society actually like of almost every man I've ever known in my life could be more vigorously anti-rape. You even look in prisons, rapists don't have a good time in prison. Mm. The only people who really have like on average, obviously worse time are child abusers. Our society does not approve of, (laughs) of rape. So to say that we have a rape culture is such a bizarre way to characterize the fact that everything isn't perfect. Yeah. And to say that we have a systemically racist society is such a strange way to say everything isn't perfect. Sometimes yep. racism happens because the response when racism actually occurs is overwhelmingly negative from not just white progressive people. I mean, my my totally conservative libertarian redneck friends will not tolerate racism. Try to.
1: What would be your kind of... If, what would you say would be a good way to deal with the situation
0: we're in like how do we go okay. dealing with it well let me actually add a point to what we we're just saying and then then i'll, I'll talk about dealing with <laughs> oh actually it. Um, i want to
1: say one more point which i just remembered before i got good on this, actually, because i this, also yeah yeah fine so you should make one more, so i was going to say that this that focus on um on for example the rape culture things it, I'm sure that there were issues with the type of masculinity in some university campuses on So I accept that that's a problem. To call it rape culture is a deliberately provocative and, in my opinion, just completely misleading description of what's going on. They're definitely scumbags who do really bad stuff. And there's a problem with the type of masculinity in some ways, maybe. But calling it rape culture is actually just an abuse of the term rape in some ways, because when you do encounter a proper rape culture, like, for example, Afghanistan, Afghanistan and a university campus in Cambridge are not the same thing. And right. at the same time as that was going on in the UK, to give just a classic example of this, we had an actual rape culture situation where there were grooming gangs across grooming the country, gangs, yeah, which were actually raping young kids. Well, and we still was, are, yeah, yeah, and it wasn't investigated because of like kind of concerns about highlighting the ethnic background of the people who were involved with it and so on. And it's like okay, I can understand those concerns, but if you're insisting that rape culture is what it's like in Cambridge and you're saying nothing about that and actually you're stopping people talking about it, you can't claim to care about rape culture. You're just being an unbelievable hypocrite. I
0: think it's very important for people to start trying to understand two things. One is that there these issues that, that social justice is speaking to are solvable issues, but there are better ways to do it than by critical social justice means, which currently own the floor. And the second is they have to learn enough about critical social justice to understand why that is. Okay, yeah. so it's very important. I know you don't, I don't wanna learn it. I, I know nobody wants to have to learn how, how people are thinking, but this has actually become societally dominant. If If witch hunting became societally dominant again in our culture, A lot of people who don't wanna learn anything about crazy witch theories would have to go learn about crazy witch theories, so they could identify when they're coming up and then choose alternatives. As you and I have discussed this entire time, there are these problems. Because the scholarship is so wackadoodle, we actually don't know the degree of the problems or where they're really occurring or what the causes are. And if we wanna solve those problems, that's a big issue. If we want to to figure out what's really going on with racism or racial disparity, which should not be considered to be the same thing, different outcomes are happening. That's not necessarily just racism. And if we, there is still some just racism. And if we want to understand those things, we have to be willing to disambiguate. We have to be willing to get clear on them. And most importantly, we have to be willing to defer to Careful, especially statistical methods and really control for various variables rather than just bulldozing everything and saying, aha, racism. And now what's the solution? Yeah. And th- most people don't even know what solution they're advocating. I don't yeah. know if people know, I, mean, I get asked all the time, what does what critical social justice actually want? They, well, they tell you on nearly every page of what they write, we need to remake society. Yeah. And it's like, stop and think about that for two seconds. Is that really what you want to do, is remake society? to yeah. tear down what there is and remake it from the ground up, I don't think most of us want to do that. And so I understand the impulse to want to have greater diversity or more inclusion or, you know, equity gets a little dodgy, depending on what you mean by equity. Uh, financial equity is one thing. And, uh, you know, like with class issues, there's is, is too much money going to the rich. And then you have this other issue that's like racial equity, which is Literally, literally, it is just a repackaging of affirmative action in a different word that the Supreme Court said they could get away with in the United States, and it spread everywhere. Um, so it's like I understand the impulse for these things, but you the the saying I tried to adopt and it didn't stick, and it doesn't really work. As method matters, but people who are sympathetic to these issues, people who who are sympathetic even to the theories so that explain these, or try to explain these issues often don't realize that there are much better ways. There are rigorous ways to do this. And that what these scholars and activists and often scholar activists are are recommending yeah. are not realistic or workable or ethical solutions. And unfortunately it requires people to, to go back and learn an awful lot really quickly about civics, about rigor, about, um, what's gone wrong. I would actually tell people, by the way, this is very important that the work that we did with the papers doesn't mean that everything coming out of academia is bunk. Yeah. I would say that I would hold at tremendous suspicion, everything out of the theoretical humanities. And I would require a lot of, um, careful parsing of social sciences, sociology and anthropology in particular, uh, psychology, a little bit less, but still some, and those, you know, some skepticism is warranted. Theori- theoretical humanities. If somebody's like, "I'm a race scholar," ignore. Just ignore. Yeah, you're not. You're you're or, you're a person who's been able to publish opinion and prejudice as as scholarship, unfortunately. But if somebody's like, "I'm a climate scientist," or "I'm a uh, geologist," or you know, whatever, that's not crazy bunk, or somebody's yeah. like, I'm a biologist. Most of the fields in academia are not significantly corrupted by politics. They have their own internal issues. They have their own internal politics. That's a thing, but it's not like this huge radical politics push has corrupted the whole thing. It, they have their own issues, but it's not the same thing as taking the entire discipline and turning it into a project for radical politics. Yeah. And so skepticism of the academy as a whole, in terms of what it teaches, maybe is warranted. Uh, but in terms of the different disciplines and what they produce, is not warranted. Most scholarship is still sound. Most scholarship is still the gold standard. Theoretical humanities, definitely, I would actually just say that you can't trust any of it. Uh, okay. That all needs to kind of be redone, preferably by sociologists and not theoreticians at all. And then um, the social sciences of, of sociology and anthropology in particular need to be um, held with skepticism, which isn't to say that they're useless or, or corrupted. Fine. That's probably a pretty good point to end it. But you should,
1: we should definitely do this again because I have about a million more questions I really want to awesome. ask you about all this. But yeah, thanks a lot for appearing. That was super interesting. And yeah, definitely come back on soon. Yeah, thanks. I'd like to. <laughs> Bye oui, bye